Hi, this is Nick. And this is Sir Ian Dangerous, and we are from the Busted Wide Open Podcast. The show that drops the big elbow on the hottest topics in sports entertainment and the world of professional wrestling. And you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy hosting, so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats, so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and your first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers. Or they can help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. And now, on to the show. But before I get on with today's episode, I have to address one big, huge mistake I made in last week's episode 48, where I talked about those football players, Ray Carruth, Aaron Hernandez, and Taekwon Knox. In the segment regarding Hernandez, I spoke of the deaths of Safiro Furtado and Daniel Abreu. I erroneously described them as immigrants from the Canary Islands, but that's not where they're from. They were from the Camp Verdean Islands, off the coast of Africa. It was brought to my attention by listener Vanessa, who is also Cape Verdean, and the loss of Zafiro and Daniel, as she described it, was devastating to the community. Thank you for pointing that out and my sincerest apologies for misrepresenting where these men held from. Dreamers, this episode is going to touch on some issues involving mental illness. We've delved into the topic several times over the course of 48 episodes, and I've tried my best to be as sensitive as I can regarding the topic. I am not a mental health expert, but I do have an aunt, my mom's sister, who I help take care of occasionally, who has been a diagnosed schizophrenic since 1985. And it's a lot to deal with, pretty much an around-the-clock job of taking care of her, taking her to her doctor's appointments, her psychologist, making sure that she takes her medications in the morning and at night. And I'm pretty sure if it were up to my aunt, she'd all but stop her medications if my mom didn't make her take them every day. She doesn't drive, she doesn't speak English, and yes, if something were to happen to my mom, I'm basically prepared to take charge of her care. It's something I've been thinking about for years now. My aunt doesn't pose any challenge to my mom, though. She just goes with the flow. Everything's taken care of for her, and it's been so long, I don't even know if she knows how to fend for herself at this point. But not everyone who has family with mental health issues 
has it as easy as we do. I don't even think I could truly describe caring for a mentally ill adult family member as easy, but sometimes when I hear or read other stories about families who struggle with it, I don't see that we have it that hard with my aunt. The resources are out there for her, and we've taken full advantage of the services available. But what do you do if your loved one who has these struggles resists treatment? Or at times, they're able to feign mental wellness enough to be excused from a treatment program. Or there are other things going on, like addiction issues thrown into the mix. Or the person that you love, who you're afraid might do harm to themselves or someone else, just flat out refuses to address the issue. Because maybe they feel like nothing is wrong with them. It's the world that's wrong. Or they're afraid of treatment or they don't like the way their medications make them feel. What, as the family member, are you to do? Well, in California, there's a law called Laura's Law that allows for court-ordered assisted outpatient treatment. In order to qualify for the program, an individual must meet certain criteria. A person must have a serious mental illness along with a recent history of psychiatric hospitalizations, time spent in jail, or acts, threats, or attempts of serious, violent behavior towards oneself or others. They also must have been given the chance to voluntarily participate in a treatment program plan by the local mental health department, but fails to the point that without a Laura's Law program, he or she will likely experience a relapse or deteriorate to the point of being dangerous to oneself or others. While a specified group of individuals may request an investigation to determine if a person qualifies for Laura's Law program, only the county mental health director or his or her designee may file a petition with the Superior Court for a hearing to determine if the person should be court ordered to receive the services outlined in the law. A person may be placed in one of these assisted outpatient programs if it's found during the court hearing that the following criteria are met. The patient must be 18 years of age or older, suffering from mental illness, be unlikely to survive safely in the community without supervision based on a clinical determination, have a history of non-compliance with treatment that has either been a significant factor in his or her being in a hospital, prison, or jail at least twice within the last 36 months, or resulted in one or more acts, attempts, or threats of serious violent behavior towards oneself or others within the last 48 months, has been offered an opportunity to voluntarily participate in a treatment plan by the local mental health department, but continues to fail to engage in treatment, is substantially deteriorating, and be in need of assisted outpatient treatment in order to prevent a relapse or deterioration that would likely result in the person meeting the inpatient commitment standards, which are being a serious risk or harm to himself or herself or others, or being gravely disabled and being likely to benefit from assisted outpatient treatment. If a court finds that the individual meets the criteria, they will be provided with intensive community treatment services and supervision by multidisciplinary teams of highly trained mental health professionals with staff to client ratios of no more than one to 10 and additional services for individuals with the most persistent and severe mental illness. 
This law was named after Laura Wilcox, a mental health employee who was killed by a man who refused to seek psychiatric treatment. She was a 19-year-old college sophomore at Haverford College. While she was working at Nevada County's Public Mental Health Clinic while she was on winter break from school, she and two others were shot to death January 10, 2001 by Scott Harlan Thorpe. He was a 40-year-old man who refused his family and his social workers' attempts to have him hospitalized as he grew increasingly more delusional and paranoid. He was eventually found incompetent to stand trial and sent to Atascadero State Hospital and later was moved to Napa State Hospital. Laura's parents advocated for the law named after her. It was passed by California legislature in 2002 and signed into law by Governor Gray Davis. This statute can only be used in counties that choose to enact the outpatient commitment programs based on Laura's law. And sometimes, no matter how much a family attempts to reach out for help, it's simply not enough to intervene in time before a tragedy takes place. One man's family tried over and over again to get help for their deteriorating son. But it all seemed to just fall on deaf ears. In today's 49th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the woodsman. James Bassler is a father who tried repeatedly to get help for his mentally ill son, Aaron. He reached out to Mendocino County's mental health system, but they refused to help. He wrote an editorial for mentalillnesspolicy.org because he strongly believed if Laura's law was implemented in the county in California in which he resided, his story may have ended differently. He writes, Last February, I made pleas for help for Aaron's mental condition to the county mental health, the jail, and the court system because our family thought Aaron was a danger to himself and others. I was not heard. I now plead for people in our community to ask the county supervisors to implement Laura's law, a law that would have provided the help Aaron needed and the safety that the public deserves. Every member of our community must be asking how and why did these tragedies happen. My family and I are in the unfortunately sad and unique position of having seen something bad coming and were unable to find anyone who would help. There are many contributing factors. I'll skip over the fact that there is no funding for mental health care, that hard drugs are so prevalent in our community, that we live in a culture of marijuana, and the fact that guns are everywhere. I first noticed something going wrong with Aaron in his late teens and remember my interactions with him, county mental health, and law enforcement. It would have been nice if we could have found help then, but he was not willing, and he was not any more dangerous at that time than a lot of young people. His arrest record from the mid to late 1990s is concerning, and at least one of those should have brought him a psychiatric evaluation. Without that, these arrests and court cases could not have foretold the events of a decade later. In fact, 
The record shows an eight-year gap with no arrests. Only his family could tell you what was going on in those eight years. For us, during this time, his illness became more and more evident. Because of his delusions and paranoia, he was unable to seek, let alone get or hold a job. For the same reasons, if he had any money, he could not have rented a place to live. We tried to provide work for him that he was capable of, and we provided him with a place to live. His family suffered greatly with his illness during this period, but we kept him from causing problems in the community. We would have liked to have some sort of help from mental health services, but none came because he would not admit a problem. He was considered an adult, even though he could not function as one. We cared about him, and we did what we could on our own. He was a big problem, but at this time, he was not perceived as dangerous. In 2009, Aaron was arrested for throwing what looked like an explosive into the Chinese consulate in San Francisco. Instead of explosives, the items were writings and drawings of a Martian military, Chinese weapon designs, and a black jumpsuit with red stars on it. They recognized that he suffered from a mental illness and he was enrolled in a pre-trial diversion program that included regular appointments with a doctor. Aaron reluctantly complied with this. His delusions and bizarre behavior were still apparent to us, but I guess he was able to keep it from the doctors. Since his paranoia caused him to be terrified of being in a room with strangers, he did not want to go back to jail or see any more doctors. So he stayed out of trouble. The real significant change in his behavior started in the late summer of 2010, when he became more and more prone to outbursts of anger. Lots of things were going bad for him. The biggest problem came when he learned that he would have to move from his home because of a change in ownership of the property. He had worked for years to make it his home, and it was a very special and private place where he could get away from people. Whenever I entered his home, it was both shocking and heartbreaking. Like a little insane asylum without any staff. His frustration with losing his home and his dire financial situation put him under a lot of stress, and it came out in angry outbursts. He was drinking more and doing more and more drugs and spiraling out of control. And there was not much that we could do, and he was getting very scary. In February of 2011, he crashed his truck into a middle school tennis court. By then, we had become so afraid of what he might do that we really only slept good for a change knowing that he was in jail and that he could not hurt himself or others. Our family contacted mental health, the jail, and the courts telling them of Aaron's symptoms, our concerns that he was a danger to himself and to others, and asked for a psychiatric evaluation and treatment. At this point, I was shocked that no one would listen and that we had a system of government that was so inaccessible and careless about public safety. What could I do? I knew he was becoming more and more dangerous, 
The system failed, or more accurately, there is no system at all to deal with a situation like this. We live in a democracy, and if the system isn't working, it's the voters in the community who aren't paying enough attention. Government can't be allowed to run a government for the government. In a democracy, the public needs to run the government for the public good and for public safety. I hope the community steps up to the plate on this issue and asks our supervisors to implement Laura's law and stays involved because if the government does nothing at all on its own, it will protect government more than the public. It is clear to me that Laura's law, if in place several months ago, would have prevented these tragedies. Nevada County provides a good model for us to follow in implementing this program that saves money by fewer hospitalizations and incarcerations. I'm pleading with concerned members of our community to put their minds behind making a better system. Make sure our county government does something besides circle the wagons for their own protection instead of doing something meaningful. I hope enough ears hear my plea this time. So who was James's son, Aaron? You've kind of got a snapshot of his life from his letter. And all of that I will revisit as we weave through this story. Aaron was born May 1st, 1976, one of two children to parents Jim Bassler and Laura Johansson. And like many young couples, their union was a tumultuous one, having only lasted four years. But they both stayed in the area, Fort Bragg, California, a coastal community located along State Route 1 in Mendocino County, California, with a population of just over 7,000. Jim remarried and had another son, and Aaron and his sister Natalie volleyed back and forth between moms and dads. Aaron's teen years were marred with difficulties. He did not do well in school. He began drinking heavily. He was athletic, with a lean build, six foot one or 1.85 meters tall. He had tried his hand at baseball and he liked to ski. And the few friends that he did have could not recall him ever having a girlfriend. There was just something about him that kept people from wanting to get too close. There was one thing about him that stood out. It was a place where he flourished in the forest. With his best friend, they were constantly in the woods. They fished and hunted, hiked and camped. They even grew their own marijuana plants out there. They made forts along the river, hiding their gear in specific locations so they'd be able to come back to it. And they both really wanted to enlist in the army after high school. In his yearbook, Aaron wrote that his future plans were to get into the Special Forces. In Fort Bragg, if you gaze westward, you will find wide, picturesque beaches. And to the east, you will find the Redwood Forest. And these trees tower over Fort Bragg. 
and it is immense. If you don't know your way, it will swallow you up as if you are entering another dimension. It can be a place of solitude, a place to be alone, a place to get lost in your thoughts. It can be a place of escape, a place of refuge. It can also be a place where troublemakers can engage in mischievous behavior and go unnoticed. And this isn't too far from where Reverend Jim Jones had set up shop just a few years before Aaron was born with his people's temple before he left for the country of Guiana, South America. Aaron found his peace here in the redwoods. He thrived when he was in the forest, the woodsman that he was. He was at ease. This was his solace. But his mind was complex, sometimes tortured, seemingly frayed. He vacillated and swayed, and then he seemed to be at peace again. His dad had told us all about it. On August 11, 2011, 45-year-old Matthew Coleman was found dead next to his vehicle on a Mendocino Coast ranch that was owned by the Save the Redwoods League. At first, rumors swirled that he might have possibly been victim of a bear attack, but soon it became apparent that he died of multiple gunshot wounds. And the news was a shock to the forest community. Matthew was a land steward and a coordinator of volunteers for Save the Redwoods for about six years. Prior to that, he was employed by the California Department of Fish and Game. It is believed that he was conducting routine property management duties, clearing some brush from one of the roads when he was shot to death, which in and of itself is a seemingly bizarre thing to have happen out there for seemingly no reason. At the same time, investigators had no idea as to who could have done this. They had no answers and they had no suspects. The idea had been floated that perhaps it was drug related. The area is known for vast swaths of its land being used for marijuana cultivation, but officials wouldn't at the time confirm or deny if there were any marijuana plantations nearby. But they did say unwittingly or unintentionally crossing into any of Mendocino County's omnipresent illegal marijuana growth is a constant concern. And the loss of Matthew to the community and to those who knew him was devastating. He was often out in the forest, along the trails working alone. He religiously cleared brush off of trails that seemed to incessantly sprout up. He was dedicated, and he worked hard and everyone liked him. He had a passion for the forest and for nature. He cared about the wildlife and he truly loved everything confined in the forest. He was intuitive. He listened for and could identify bird species by sound. He surveyed the wildlife populations and he desperately wanted to recover the endangered species of the forests. 
He was a frequent contributor to the Land Trust newsletter. He took pictures of the forest, and he would lead hikes along the trails. He was kind and compassionate, thoughtful, loving, respectful of people, of wildlife, and of the forest. He left behind so much unfinished, brilliant work that those who worked with him feared that they'd never be able to find anyone to take his place or to finish what he had started. His death was a tremendous loss, and nobody could think of any reason why anyone would shoot Matthew Coleman to death in this manner. Now, while the local community and the media began speculating that Matthew's death may have been the result of him being too close to illegal marijuana cultivating activities, there were no such cultivations near the scene where he was shot. It was determined following his autopsy that he was shot in the lower abdomen and the upper right arm with that bullet having passed through his arm and into his torso. And the weapon was believed to be a high-powered rifle but no shell casings were found at the scene. But on August 18th, a search and rescue team member found a piece of aluminum foil in the crime scene that was fashioned in a way to be used to smoke marijuana, and burnt marijuana was found inside the piece of foil. It was found in a location that was believed, based on the trajectory of the bullets that struck Matthew, that the person who shot him would have been positioned in that place. Another small wad of foil from Hershey's Chocolate Kisses were also found in the same location. These items were processed for DNA, and it would later be determined that that was the DNA of Aaron Bassler. It would also be determined, and I'll talk about this more later, that Aaron's mom, Laura, had given her son a ride to this location on May 10, 2011, the day before Matthew was shot. She dropped him off around noon along the same roadway that led out to where the shooting took place. This was a trip that Aaron had planned. He had gone shopping in the days prior to get food and provisions in Fort Bragg. His mom took him to the Safeway on August 8th and she also knew that he was armed. About a month earlier, in July, she dropped him off near the same location across the highway. Her son told her that he had two camps in the Westport area. But by the time she divulged this information, it was too late. In the early stages of the investigation into Matthew's death, there were no viable suspects identified, and nobody was coming forward with any information about it. On August 23rd, a gentleman by the name of Ian Cheney contacted Jerry Mello, to report a bunker-type camp that he had discovered on private property belonging to the Hawthorne Timber Company. Jerry Mello worked for the timber company as a property manager. He was also a former mayor and city council member of Fort Bragg and spent most of his life working in forestry in one capacity or another. With the information that he got from Ian, Jerry contacted the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office and spoke to Deputy Jonathan Martin to pass on the information about the bunker. He also wanted to make an inquiry about a man by the name of Aaron, the person that he had been told was responsible for the bunker 
that was on the timber company's property. His email read as follows. This morning I took a report from Ian Cheney, who was concerned about a bunker-type camp he observed on Hawthorne Timber Company's property in the lower Noyo River area. I am asking for some guidance or some information about the person who is the apparent grower. Mr. Cheney identified the person as a young man whose first name is Aaron, last name unknown. He is apparently an eccentric person. His mother, who lives on Sherwood Road, just about on top of the Skunk Railroad Tunnel. Aaron apparently lives across Sherwood Road in a red house when he's around. Aaron is the person who ran his dark Toyota pickup into the tennis court's fence at the middle school a few months ago. Hopefully that gives you enough information for a positive identification. Mr. Cheney has seen Aaron on the Balassi property several times this year. He describes Aaron as a tall young man who sports a skinhead and dresses in dark clothing. Mr. Cheney has seen Aaron carrying potting soil and fertilizer across the Balassi property onto Hawthorne Timber Company property, where he claims to have observed a bunker dug into the ground and surrounded by barbed wire. The Balassi family hears chainsaws working at night. Mr. Cheney observed lots of cleared areas around the bunker. He told me that a fire had started in the area. He saw red poppies growing in the area. He did not stay around long enough to look for more, as Aaron is known to be a bit unstable. I received the Hawthorne map this morning with Mr. Cheney, and my best estimate is that the site is near north 39 degrees, 25.9 minutes, west 123 degrees, 44.1 minutes. It is my plan to walk the area from the South Fork to the Skunk Railroad tomorrow morning to get a better location. I will appreciate any information that you might provide. Thank you, Jerry. Deputy Martin responded to the email to Jerry that the Aaron in question was Aaron Bassler, and that Bassler had been under arrest for being under the influence of a controlled substance and that he is, quote, against law enforcement. On August 25th, Jerry reported to Deputy Martin that he had attempted to locate the camp on August 24th, but he was unable to do so. His email read in part, John, thank you. Is he in custody now? I walked for six hours yesterday on the Hawthorne logging roads, overgrown for sure, and found nothing. I have an appointment at 8 a.m. on Saturday to meet with Ian Cheney to get a better location. It also occurs to me that this may be our guy in the scout camp incidents. And what he's referring to are burglaries that had been happening at the Boy Scout camp on the Noyo River between June 23rd and June 28th of 2011. The camp is surrounded by Hawthorne timber property. A person or persons unknown had broken into the buildings and stolen bedding, small hand tools, food, alcohol, and other items commonly used when camping. One of the padlocks had been shot off by a high-powered rifle. 
Deputy Martin had told Jerry about this incident, and Jerry, with the help of the camp staff, later located the majority of the stolen items hidden under a bush near the camp trail. A brown sleeping bag, a folding chair, and other small items were not recovered. The same day that Jerry helped recover some of the stolen property from the bush, a man identified only as a skinhead, wearing camouflage clothing and carrying an AK-47 rifle, was seen by railroad personnel walking on the tracks within a quarter mile of the Boy Scout camp. Jerry told Deputy Martin that he believed there may be a survivalist camp in the area, so Deputy Martin conducted a fixed-wing flight over the camp the next day, but he did not see any. Deputy Martin emailed back to tell him that Aaron Bassler was not in custody. But unfortunately, nobody was aware that Aaron was in the area where Matthew Coleman was murdered. So Jerry was not given any potential warnings about him being armed and dangerous. On August 27, 2011, Jerry got together with Ian Cheney so he could show him where the bunker was located. When they arrived in the area, they discovered a water line that had been camouflaged. When Ian had last spotted this water line, it was not camouflaged. They followed it to an open top bunker. With Jerry cutting the water line as they traveled towards the bunker, neither one of them observed anybody at or around the location, nor did they hear anybody. The land around the bunker had been terraced, where there were plants growing on them. Plants which Ian believed to be opium poppies. When they arrived at the bunker, Jerry set down his axe, which is what he always carried with him, and he began taking pictures of the area and taking down their GPS locations. Ian also took pictures of the bunker, and as the two of them were looking towards the south, Ian heard a kind of crackling sound behind them, and kind of from above. Ian whispered to Jerry, I think he's right behind us. And the two of them turned around towards that direction, and they spotted Aaron, hidden in the brush about 10 feet or 3 meters above them. They looked directly at Aaron, and Jerry yelled, Hey, what are you doing over there? But with a little bit more profanity. Aaron answered that he was an FBI agent. And with that, he opened fire. Although he could not be certain at the time, Ian thought that he was firing an AK-47 assault rifle. He heard three shots fired in rapid automatic succession. After the third shot, he saw Jerry spin around, falling down hard to the ground and sliding a short distance down the hill. Ian was close enough to see the whites of Aaron's eyes and immediately recognized the gunman as Aaron Bassler. He dropped to the ground and took cover against the bunker. Ian returned fire with his 9mm semi-automatic handgun. Aaron stood up and began unloading his rifle into the area that Ian was attempting to hide for cover. Obviously, he was outgunned, so Ian decided to slide down the hill. And as he did, 
He could hear bullets whiz by his head, and the trees around him were being hit with the rapid gunfire. He tried calling out for Jerry, but he received no response. He looked back and saw Aaron standing there, on top of Jerry's back, looking down at him as he continued firing. Aaron began advancing towards him through the brush, so Ian stood up and took cover behind the trees, running as fast as he could through the forest, sporadically returning fire to hold Aaron off. As he was able to put some space between himself and Aaron, he called 911 twice. Ian was eventually able to escape to the Skunk Railroad tracks, where he encountered a speeder cart operator, which is just a maintenance trolley on the railroad tracks. The speeder operator stopped and Ian got on board and continued away from the scene. When they arrived at Merritt's camp, Cheney contacted law enforcement to report what had just happened. When investigators finally made their way to the location of the shooting, they found Jerry's lifeless body. And also at the scene, they found some familiar pieces of evidence. The tin foil marijuana pipe, later found again to contain the DNA of Aaron Bassler. They also found Hershey's chocolate kiss foils as well. These were the two common denominators that linked these two crimes. Jerry Mello was a former mayor and a longtime city council member of Fort Bragg. And it would be his shooting that would link Aaron Bassler to both his and Matthew Coleman's murder. And this is where the manhunt would begin. And it was not going to be easy to find the woodsman. He had a familiarity with the forest that made him very elusive and difficult to track. And he made it very clear that he would shoot indiscriminately at anyone he encountered along the way. That's what law enforcement were faced with. A man armed with a high-powered weapon, hiding someplace in very, very dense forest that had the skills and ability to survive out in the woods. So who is Aaron Bassler? We have an idea based on some of the things we saw his father wrote about him in those letters I presented to you earlier. He was obviously a very troubled man with an extensive criminal history. But what happened to those dreams of joining the army? He backed out at the very last minute. His friend, the one he camped out with frequently, would contribute it to the ease of making money by selling weed. But that really wasn't it. Aaron had deeper issues that were floating to the surface. He started drinking and experimenting with psychedelic drugs, and life soon became difficult and unmanageable. He began becoming delusional, obsessing over things in ways that did not make sense. He talked about Nostradamus and quantum physics. His parents were concerned, but they wrote off their son's unusual musings and ramblings of those coming from an addict. 
His father, Jim, attempted to step in. He wanted to help. He wanted to protect his son. He had Aaron move into an old farmhouse across from where he lived on a swath of the family property that had seen little use. Aaron liked being alone, and this might just be what his son needed to settle his mind and his thoughts. Aaron had a generally closer relationship with his mom, but she continued to do mom things for him, such as cook and do his laundry. He tried holding down some regular menial jobs, newspaper delivery, a custodian at a movie theater, chopping firewood. But all he really wanted to do was grow marijuana and be by himself in the woods. He was growing his crops on private property, however, and he found himself constantly ducking their guards and routine patrols. He did earn himself a good amount of money, and for his farmhouse, he purchased a nice sofa, a big TV, a new guitar, and some guns. The rest of his money, he would hide in cans and bury it. In 2009, Aaron was arrested in San Francisco. He had made a number of trips to the Chinese consulate in the Fillmore district, leaving some strange packages on the steps. Consulate diplomats who spotted the packages immediately called the police and the bomb squad was summoned to the scene. There were no explosives inside, but what they did find inside was confounding. Three packages on three separate occasions contained drawings of a red star and the message Alpha RE Martian Military Chinese Weapons Designs. The fourth time he arrived at the consulate, he was spotted by police heaving a package over their fence. He was arrested on the spot. Inside this package was a black jumpsuit covered in red stars. Of this, Aaron would tell a friend that Martians were helping China build technology to invade the United States. While he was in jail, his sister Natalie went over to where he was living at the time, which was a gray building behind the farmhouse his dad had moved him into. He had actually burned down the farmhouse when he lit a fire in the stove. She was three years younger, but much more bright and charming and outgoing than her older brother. They weren't close, but she still wanted to try to figure out the puzzle that was her brother and some reasons behind his odd behavior. Aaron had built a fence around the outbuilding and everything had a padlock on it, save for one window that was open, through which she climbed. It was dark inside. He had hung dark sheets over all the windows. Even the floor was black. He had no dishes and no furniture except for a large table. Underground, Aaron had built an 8x12 basement, which is where he slept, but she did not venture down there. The ground level room was filled with papers that seemed to contain Aaron's thoughts, maps, ramblings, drawings of aliens. And it was in this moment, 
Her brother wasn't the weird jerk that she thought he was for all of these years. He's sick. And in coming to this realization, she found herself kind of relieved. He was in jail, but maybe he could get some help. As she could see from the condition of his living quarters, he desperately needed it. But as far as anyone knows, Aaron was never really diagnosed with any psychiatric disorder or mental illness, but they couldn't know for sure. They could only go by what Aaron would share with them, and because of privacy laws, they had to go on his word. After leaving those four packages at the Chinese consulate, Aaron was placed in a pre-trial diversion program. The deal was, if he went to counseling and completed them satisfactorily, the charges would be dismissed. The program seemed to help, but Aaron didn't see himself as he saw the other patients in the program. They were crazy, but he wasn't. That was his perception. He finished the program and apparently it went well for him, and those charges were dropped. But as soon as his program was over, according to his family, he reverted, and his behaviors grew increasingly alarming. In one incident, he yelled obscenities aimed at an off-duty police officer who was sitting waiting for his children at the bus stop. He followed that up with parking his vehicle on Highway 1 for days at a time, eating Skittles. And in his vehicle, he had taken a can of black spray paint and blacked out his entire dashboard. His ramblings increased. He appeared agitated and fidgety. The subject he talked about were things like survivalism and engaging in a one-man warfare. Against who? It's anybody's guess. His family was doing everything they could to hang on to Aaron, but they were afraid of him and for him. In the winter of 2011, Aaron drove his truck directly into a chain-link fence around the tennis courts of a middle school. He came within feet of striking a group of students there in the area. He was traveling at approximately 80 miles per hour. When police arrived, Aaron resisted arrest. He fought and thrashed about so violently that it took several officers, pepper spray, and tasers to subdue him and take him into custody. His blood alcohol content was three times the legal limit. And with this arrest, his family found relief again. They felt like he was safe in jail. And if he lost control, he could be subdued by corrections officers. His family did not have the ability to stop him. His sister was terrified that he would attempt to take his own life. She turned to her dad, asking him, what could they do to help? Aaron's dad tried doing some research on his own, and from what he was able to find in his readings, based on Aaron's symptoms and behaviors, he came to believe that his son was schizophrenic. 
He visited his local chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness to seek more advice. And what he was told to do is that he needed to write letters to every public official who he could possibly get help from and request that Aaron receive a psychiatric evaluation and some subsequent treatment. He was told that families have done this and have never failed to hear back and get help. So that's what he did. He wrote letters to a county psychiatrist and to Aaron's public defender. He outlined Aaron's symptoms, the paranoia, the delusions, the reckless behavior, and the levels of rage, and begged for some intervention. In part, his letters stated that they feared for Aaron's safety, their own safety, and the safety of the community if his son's psychiatric disorder is not addressed and evaluated. And nobody listened. Because it seemed nobody ever saw Jim Bassler's letters. At least that's what they say. They just slipped through the bureaucratic cracks. And so would Aaron. And as for this drunk driving arrest, Aaron was sentenced to a few weeks in jail and the judge ordered him to attend a drunk driving program. By the spring of 2012, Aaron visited his dad and they talked. He brought up his time in jail, crashing his truck, and his dad listened to him ramble on. And Aaron seemingly came up with the perfect solution. He was going to go live in the woods. He told his dad that he was certain he'd be able to get his head straight out there by himself. And his dad was 100% on board with the idea. It was perfect. Basically genius. Out there in the woods, his son would be safe. And everyone would be safe from him. And then, a few months later, after Aaron decided to move into the woods, on August 11th, Matthew Coleman was shot and killed by an unknown assailant in the woods. And then 16 days later, Jerry Mello met with the same fate. But by then, they had a name, Aaron Bassler. And he needed to be found before any more lives were lost. On September 2, 2011, the Mendocino County District Attorney filed a felony criminal complaint charging Aaron James Bassler with the murders of Matthew Coleman and Jerry Mello, as well as the attempted murder of Ian Cheney. The special circumstance of lying in wait was added to the charges. A no-bail warrant was issued for his arrest on the same day. And with that, the manhunt for Aaron was on. Searchers first went in the direction Ian Cheney had described, and a SWAT team began retracing the path. But they encountered difficulties almost immediately. The terrain was harsh. By the first night of searching, they hadn't even been able to find the bunker. The trails were overgrown with brush, keeping the search to a painfully slow pace. 
Their men were tripping and falling into ravines. Their intentions were to stake out some specific areas, but the county only had a few dozen deputies. They didn't have the kinds of numbers officers needed to conduct a search in the kinds of woods that Aaron was hiding in. He had a huge advantage over law enforcement. The SWAT began first riding the skunk train railroad into the forest, each one in full camouflage tactical gear, helmets, night vision equipment, bulletproof vests, reinforced with rifle plates, and they were armed with rifles that could rival the power of Aaron's. They began hiking into the woods, lugging all of their heavy equipment into woods that they were not familiar with, hoping to flush him out of hiding. Aaron had nothing with him that could be tracked, and searching the forest from the sky was nearly useless as they could not see through the thicket of branches. They walked single file through the thicket and the trails, remaining as quiet as possible. They barely spoke, and if they did, they whispered, and they listened intently to their surroundings. They were certain if he was near, they would hear him before they'd see him, especially if he caused an animal to scurry off. They would hear that. They found remnants of fires that had been burning and put out. They found carcasses of birds that had been cooked in the fire and dined on. They found these bizarre crosshairs, circles with two sticks in the formation of an X or a cross. What that meant, searchers had no idea. It could be taunting them. It could be a warning to them, or even to himself. Or it could be just something only meaningful to Aaron. Searchers, they were on his trail, but how far ahead was he? He seems to be sustaining himself well. He's in pretty good physical shape and health. He knows what he's doing out here. He's a survivalist. He could be hearing them. He could be seeing them. He could have his sight trained on them. He could be in a tree. He could be atop a nearby slope. He could be just around the next bend on the trail. But one thing was certain to searchers, someone was going to die. In the meantime, Aaron Bassler's mugshot was everywhere. His poster was put up all over town. Every business had one in its window with the words in huge block letters, armed and dangerous. This man was creeping around the woods near their town, and the community was on edge. But what was going on with Aaron's mom and dad? Going back to the first murder, it was apparent to his mom that this was the area of the forest where she had dropped her son off the day before, wasn't it? Well, I'm not going to point fingers at his parents. It's not up to me to judge. I know they loved and cared for their son, but investigators saw it differently. In their final report of these events, they would conclude that between August 11th and August 27th, 
the days of the two murders and the time in between, that the evidence is clear and convincing that at least one of Aaron's family members withheld critical information that would have reasonably warned and focused law enforcement prior to the death of Jerry Mello and the attempted murder of Ian Cheney. The report also maintains that through various sources, they found that Aaron's mother knew that he was armed and camping in the area. During the course of the overall investigation, it was found that on August 28th, the day after the murder of Jerry, that Aaron's mother had driven her son on Highway 1 on August 10th and dropped him off sometime before noon. And this is the same road that led to the scene where Matthew Coleman was found shot to death. She also had said prior to dropping him off that she took him shopping for provisions to go camping. And this wasn't the first time that she had done so. And she knew that he was armed with a high-powered rifle. And it would be revealed that his mother believed that there was something wrong with her son, that his behavior was troubling, and she knew him to experience bouts of paranoia and anger. It had also been uncovered through witness interviews and accounts that on Sunday, August 21st, that Aaron's dad, Jim Bassler, had heard directly from his former wife, Aaron's mother, while they were in attendance at a family gathering that she had dropped her son off with a rifle near the scene of Matthew Coleman's death. Upon hearing this, Jim recommended that she call the sheriff's office and report this information. She did later confirm that her ex-husband did ask her at the family gathering to report what she knew to police, but she explained that she did not contact law enforcement because she did not know at the time where her son was, and she didn't know for sure that her son had done anything wrong. And on top of that, she did not believe her son was capable of murder, so she did not want to be responsible for focusing law enforcement on him as a possible suspect something she would describe as an unfortunate choice in hindsight. There is no record that Aaron's mother attempted to disclose any information to interested law enforcement. She admitted that she was aware of the timely media reports of the shooting of Matthew Coleman and that the general location of where it was reported that he had died and that it was close to where she had last dropped her son off. And now his parents were nervous scared for their son's life and their own. Jim had cut down the brush around his house so Aaron could not hide on his property. He kept his pistol close while he slept. He didn't think his son would hurt him, but he didn't think it'd be a good idea to be unarmed either. In the next moment, he began to worry. What if his son were to take his own life someplace out in the forest and they'd never find him? The sheriff in charge of the search for Aaron Bassler was Tom Allman, a 30-year veteran of the force. His biggest charge prior to the search for Aaron was leading a squadron of helicopters and planes that led to the discovery and uprooting of more than half a million marijuana plants in his county. But he had never been in charge of a search such as the one he was in charge of now for Aaron Bassler. No one in the county ever had. This was all new to everyone. The search headquarters was located in a Fort Bragg substation. 
The map on the wall of the area could not even begin to depict how utterly unnerving the task of finding Aaron would be. It was 400 square miles of roads and trails that Aaron had spent much of his life hiking. And many of these trails were near to impossible to pass with overgrowth years in the making. In talking to a local logger who worked the area, Sheriff Allman was told that he was looking for a rabbit in a 400 square mile area that's nearly impossible to traverse. And that rabbit is armed with an assault rifle. The search for Aaron dragged into its second week and there was a break, a sighting. Aaron was spotted by a sergeant close to his mother's residence, but he quickly vanished into the forest. They did find his backpack, and in it, a bar of soap, a disposable razor, aspirin, coffee grounds, fish hooks, bags of seeds, and dozens of rounds of ammunition, same in caliber as the rounds that killed Jerry. And the strangest find? 18 playing cards, all of them the eight of spades. Of all the things found in his backpack, this bothered Sheriff Almond the most. What did these eights of spades mean? He googled it, but whatever reason Aaron collected these eights was something that only could be found in his mind. A place that Google could not access. The sheriff mulled something over. Something that I talked to you about last week when we discussed those three crimes committed by those three football players. I spoke to you about motives for crimes. I mentioned love, money, jealousy, and rage, and how some crimes stump us. They even stifle us when we think too hard about it. And once you find a motive, you can trace a crime for what it is, figure out what it means, and it can lead you to a solution and to some answers. And if you're searching for a criminal, knowing what drove them might just lead you to them. But this wasn't going to be the case for Aaron. His crimes weren't going to be made sense of. There would be no explanation found. And when Sheriff Almond came to that realization of just how troubled the man that he was searching for was, he needed to shift his thinking. Aaron, to him, was a man lost in his own mind. He knew that he was looking for someone that sorely distrusted him. And the motives for his killings were not anything anyone outside of Aaron's mind could explain. All of the things that they were finding, the playing cards, the crosshairs on the ground, and all the things they came to know about his paranoia, the aliens, the red stars, his ramblings, his obsessions. Those were things caught up in the tangles of Aaron's mind, and nobody was going to be able to unravel it. Three weeks into the search for Aaron, it was discovered that someone had forced open a window at a Boy Scout facility called Camp Noyo. And they made yet another eerie discovery on the side of the building, a cross fashioned out of sticks. But this time, they had something they hadn't been privy to thus far. 
The building was equipped with motion sensor cameras. They were able to access surveillance footage and found some black and white pictures of Aaron breaking into that Boy Scout facility. Investigators also discovered at least one transient living in the area that had an encounter with Aaron, but the meeting was amicable. Aaron shared a joint with him. So the sheriff began ruminating over the idea that there could be a way to approach Aaron in a way that might lead him to just give up. But when he looked at those photographs of Aaron taken by that surveillance camera, he didn't think a peaceful end would come. He kind of appeared like a ghost in the photos because it was night and the camera's night vision made him glow and his back was turned towards the camera. In his right hand, Aaron held his rifle next to him, a huge rifle. And you can clearly see that his index finger rested next to the trigger. Aaron, alone, in the dead of night, in a desolate forest, is obviously armed and ready to fire at any moment. This is who they were searching for. The search for Aaron hit the one-month mark. Dozens of law enforcement personnel from a variety of agencies joined in to help the county sheriff, including U.S. Marshals from all over California who were brought in. But they knew that time was of the essence. This was getting into the end of September, heading into fall. Rain was going to begin pouring down the area. Storms were going to batter the coastal town. Fog would soon be rolling in, making the forest even more impossible than it already was. So they weren't going to give up. Not just yet. A $30,000 reward was set up for information leading to Aaron, but no real leads were gained from the calls received. Law enforcement strategically placed at least 40 more motion-activated cameras throughout the forest, but they ended up with a bunch of pictures of wildlife. They tried to think of ways of communicating with him, perhaps leaving him some notes throughout the forest. But they just didn't think Aaron was in a state of mind that he would be able to take in what they wanted from him, for him to surrender safely. At the same time, Sheriff Allman was trying to work with Aaron's parents. He felt for him, as the sheriff had had a brother who struggled with mental illness and ended up committing suicide. He's had families come to him, asking him to help with their troubled loved ones. But that kind of help, he just doesn't have the resources to offer. The sheriff asked Aaron's dad if he wanted to try and help in the search. Of course, his dad was afraid this was going to end badly, with his son dead. But he also did not want anyone else killed either. So along with some deputies, Aaron's dad got on the skunk train. With a bullhorn in his hand, he rode the train, imploring Aaron to turn himself in safely. And he did so in a manner that was as if he were having a normal conversation with him an everyday talk with his son, quite casual. He didn't want to come across as alarmed or urgent or demanding, 
He just wanted to talk to his son. His mother did not want to get on that train to find her son. She was hoping her son would come to find her. Near her home, she would shout her son's name, thinking he might be hiding someplace with an earshot. She left him a bag of food outside her house with a note that read, Aaron, if you come across this bag, it's from me, your mom. The bag is not bugged or anything. Please turn yourself in. We are all worried sick about you. Please leave me a note. Love your mom and family. P.S. No one knows that I left this. All the while, as Aaron was being searched for, he was breaking into cabins. He was stealing food, bread, peanut butter, rice, pasta, hot dogs, dozens of canned goods, even beers and a bottle of vodka. He took other necessities as well, blankets, binoculars, and one 12-gauge shotgun and a 22 caliber rifle. He even hung out in one cabin. He smoked some weed on the sofa and drank from a bottle of Jim Beam. A thumbprint was left on the bottle, and it was Aaron's. It began to dawn on the sheriff that Aaron wasn't hunting for people to kill. He was killing when he felt like he was under threat. He was just afraid of them as they were of him. The next day, a team of three searchers spotted Aaron near a logging road. He had that rifle in his hand. Aaron spotted them and opened fire and vanished again into the forest. But they were closing in. The day after that, they got another report of a burglary at a shop about 14 miles away from the previous burglary. This time, he took a bag of chips, five boxes of ammunition, and a pair of size 12 hiking boots. They immediately called in a dog handler and his bloodhound, Willow. She usually works in cities, Los Angeles specifically, and they had her sniff around the shop where Aaron had just been. She sniffed around a bench where he had just sat. And then she darted into the woods and took them straight to Aaron's bunker. On October 1st, 2011, every single law enforcement team involved in the search converged on the area Willow had led them to. During the night, they hunkered down in strategic locations along some of the trails they thought he might use. They hid in the same way Aaron hid from them inside tree trunks, in the twisted brush, or just in the dark and gloom of the forest around them. It had been 36 days since their manhunt commenced. The night began to give way to day, and just before dawn, fresh officers quietly came in, without saying a word, and relieved the overnight team. And finally, after 36 days, Aaron was finally spotted. The officer who made visual contact 
using a nonverbal communication, alerted the others of Aaron's movements. There he was, walking around a bend. His hair was grown in a little bit. He was dressed all in black. He had a backpack with him. In it was a stolen rifle and hundreds of rounds of ammunition and more eights of spades. And then the radio message was sent back to Sheriff Allman. Target down. The official report describes the conclusion to the manhunt as follows. After relieving officers arrived that morning of October 1st, they commenced the 360-degree observation coverage from their posts, and each one of them would be looking in different directions and set their agreed-upon nonverbal communication should anyone spot Aaron. Based on the earlier firefight and escape that Aaron made from the Alameda County team, they were concerned that any audible signal might be heard by Aaron, allowing him to immediately fire on their position and or escape into the woods again. They also knew that he had previously opted to take cover and re-engage and fire upon them with the full knowledge that they were law enforcement officers. At 12.30 p.m., a deputy spotted a white male dressed all in black, walking with purpose. The man was moving fast as he seemed to explode out of the gulch. The man was armed with a rifle at the ready. He was immediately recognized as Aaron Bassler. Without giving any verbal warning, the deputy fired on Aaron. Despite believing that his shot had hit Aaron center mass, he recounted that he did not go down notwithstanding what he believed to be a hit. Aaron did not release his grip on his rifle. Believing there to still be a risk, the deputy fired again, joined now by two other team members. Having a magazine filled to capacity of 30 rounds, the deputy fired a total of six shots, stopping when he perceived no further risk to himself or others. Another deputy having his magazine filled to capacity of 30 rounds fired a total of three shots, stopping when he perceived no further risk to himself or others. And the third deputy in his team, having his magazine also filled to its capacity of 30 rounds, also fired a total of three rounds, bringing the total number fired by the apprehension team to 12 as a whole. It would later be determined that seven out of the two shots fired at Aaron struck him, and two of those rounds struck him in the head, resulting in his death. In the press conference that followed this final encounter with Aaron, the sheriff said that he fully supports the actions the men under his command took in neutralizing the suspect. They fired upon him without any verbal warning, and we can understand why they did that. It appeared to them that he was ready to fire. They decided that they would not be able to give him a verbal command to drop his weapon and that he would comply. The final report stated that just as any law enforcement officer lacks authority under the law to use deadly force against a suspect who has affirmatively indicated an intent to surrender, does not pose an immediate threat of serious harm to anybody, 
A law enforcement officer is nevertheless well within the breadth and scope of the law, proper police procedure, and tactical response to fire on a well-armed individual at first opportunity who presents a high risk as a fugitive, who has answered an earlier opportunity to surrender to law enforcement with a double engagement and gunfire, and who continues to pose a life-threatening risk as an armed and escaping fugitive. As mentioned elsewhere herein, after being told face-to-face by at least one person that he was a wanted man, Aaron ignored literally weeks of self-surrender opportunities and instead escalated tensions in the woods by focusing lethal attacks on members of an apprehension team. The comments of one of the Sacramento County deputies, one who only secondarily engaged are instructive. Had he been the first deputy to see the fast approaching suspect armed with a rifle with a high capacity magazine, he would have also fired on the suspect without announcing his presence, based on the fact that when Jerry Mello tried to communicate with Aaron, Jerry was immediately shot and killed. Thereafter, when Alameda County identified themselves as law enforcement, Aaron responded by firing on the sergeant, slipping into the brush to flank the team, and then emerged from hiding, firing again on all three team members. Had Aaron escaped again, there was a concern that he would be a lethal threat to the other unengaged law enforcement officers in other observation posts spread throughout the area, whom Aaron may have been able to take by surprise, especially given his ability to move silently through the woods. After Aaron was shot and killed, the Mendocino County District Attorney's investigator on the scene found him in his final resting place. On his right side, with his arm partially covering a pistol-gripped rifle that was almost completely wrapped in black electrical tape. I posed the question on the discussion page, why would Aaron wrap his rifle with electrical tape? And I got some really good answers from Lacey, Karen, Kelly, Randy, and Nick. And the one that seems to make the most sense in this situation is to prevent any reflection off the metal or the shiny parts of his weapon. Thank you all for answering my question in the group. So his rifle was a Chinese-made but modified Norinco SKS Sporter 7.26 by 39mm semi-automatic rifle. It was loaded with a large capacity magazine and there was one live round taped just above the pistol grip on the left side of the receiver. The safety was off, and there was a live round in the chamber, making the weapon ready to fire. The large capacity magazine was loaded with 27 rounds of high velocity ammunition. The deceased had with him a backpack that contained 208 more rounds of 7.62 by 39 millimeter ammunition, a 22 caliber rifle with a sawed off barrel, and 26 rounds of ammunition for that weapon. In a ballistics examination of the Norinco ammunition, it was determined to be the same make, color, and caliber as the previous shootings Aaron had been involved in. And of course, he had those eights of spades. The report concluded that it was clear beyond a reasonable doubt that Aaron Bassler attempted to murder the members of the Alameda County Sheriff's Department 
who were assigned to deploy in Mendocino County to provide mutual aid to the Mendocino County Sheriff's apprehension effort. And evidence is clear beyond a reasonable doubt that the use of lethal force applied against Aaron causing his death was objectively reasonable given the totality of the information known to law enforcement. The sheriff stated that if they had been able to encounter him while he slept or while he didn't have a weapon at the ready, they would have been able to take him peacefully. They tried leaving him messages throughout the forest with instructions on how to surrender, but whether or not he got the messages is unknown. And if he did, he did not make any attempts to see this to a nonviolent end. He also pointed out that a Humboldt County Sheriff deputy spotted Aaron and he did not appear to be armed. He had the chance to take a clear shot, but opted not to. And then Aaron would go on later to open fire when he encountered with the Alameda County search team. The sheriff further stated that in no uncertain terms, that if Aaron had not been so clearly ready to shoot, they would have given him the chance to peacefully surrender. But they did not feel that that was a viable outcome. The sheriff was asked about the allegations that law enforcement had all of the intentions of shooting Aaron on site, but he responded to that by saying, if that had been the case, if there had been a shoot-to-kill order, this thing wouldn't have lasted 36 days. And with those seven shots, Aaron's heartbreaking descent came to an end at the age of 35. He was only two miles away from his mother's home. When Aaron was placed under arrest that February following his crash into the middle school tennis courts, both his father and his sister sent those letters out to the court, to the jail, to the sheriffs, and to the county mental health officials that they feared for Aaron's safety, their own safety, and the safety of the community if his mental health issues were not addressed. They implored anyone who would listen that their son needed to be evaluated and he needed treatment but no one ever answered them. The California mental health system, in some capacity, left Aaron untreated, and at the time, Mendocino County did not have any rendition of Laura's law in place. If it had, could Aaron's story have ended differently? We'll never know. The majority of mentally ill people are never violent or even dangerous. But Aaron Bassler, it seems, was the exception. And three families are made to live with the consequences of a system's failure to recognize the need and listen once again. And with that, we're going to bring an end to this 49th episode of California Dreaming. Please join me on the Facebook page where we can discuss this and other cases that we've covered. You can also find me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And Patreon supporters, I am going to get to that bonus. It's going to be up very, very soon, within days of this, I promise. And it will be quickly followed up with a second exclusive bonus for you as well. Thank you for your patience and your continued support on the California Dreamings Patreon page. 
California Dreaming is proudly presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can find me along with some other amazing shows, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, Historium, 41 Owned, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. There are so many new and fun and exciting things happening over there at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. The website is simply stunning. You have to go check it out. And while you're there, click on our blog and our merchandise store. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for joining me. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, I'm Lucy Mortem. And my name is Ginny. And we invite you to join us every week on Les Mordia, where we discuss our favorite true crime topics. But not just true crime, any and all things dark and mysterious that pertain to the human psyche. Cults, conspiracy, weird pop culture. But hey, we're not professionals and we're often inappropriate. We really bank on you finding that charming, though. <laughs> so turn out the lights, lock the doors, and find us on your favorite podcast app. Welcome. To Nordic True Crime. We are a weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, to hand on day. <laughs>